Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Ben Allen. The long-term lease of Harrisburg's parking system was supposed to help the city get back on solid financial footing. And while it has made a difference, it's not living up to predictions. It's not hitting its revenue goals, and the city, county, and state haven't been able to agree on who gets what. Penn Live reporter Christine Vendel is here to explain, along with our own Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. Plus, a Lancaster attorney successfully petitioned President Barack Obama to reduce a man's sentence. We'll hear from McNeese Wallace and Newark attorney Keandra Baer a little later. And finally... It's the holiday season. Oh, it's great. And that means a lots of lights. Lots of lights. Lights and windows, Christmas tree lights, the menorah, and more. But why? We'll discuss with Jenny Ashton of the State Museum. But first, let's talk Harrisburg Park and want to welcome in Penn Live reporter Christine Vendel and our own Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. Good morning to both of you. Morning, Ben. Nice to see you. Morning, Ben. All right. So, Christine, let's kind of set up the players in this dispute. So um, you've got the, the city. Um, what's, what's the city's role in, in all this when it comes to parking in Harrisburg at this point? Well, the city was able to unload hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars of debt through this deal. And it so it's no longer on the city's books but what they stand to gain from the parking system now is about $6 million in revenue annually. Half of that comes from the so-called waterfall payments, which that's the part that's in dispute right now between the county and the other players. They also have invested interest as far as economic development because the parking is integrally tied to the business downtown, bringing people downtown, and so the level of the rates um, affect who comes downtown, and so they have very much skin in the game. Yeah, so they are actually, in this case, unlike other cases that we've heard of in the past, the city doesn't have any responsibility for bond payments. It's really Correct. just this this money that continues to flow in. Right, it's money they count on for their annual budget, and, and their budget is $65 million, so when you're talking $6 million, that's a pretty good chunk of the overall budget. Yeah, just about 10% mm-hmm. if I did my math Right. So, okay, so you've got the city. Now you've got the county, and the county here is on the hook for these bonds. They're the ones that guaranteed the bonds along with AGM, so that's their role. And And AGM's an insurer for for bonds like this. Right, and so they were able to insure it, and so they're very interested in making sure that the debt obligations can be made because if if the system doesn't generate enough revenue to make the payments, they have to make the payments. So they could be on the hook, essentially. Right. And and then where does the state come in? Because this can be a little tricky to figure out. you got the city, you got the county. Where does the state come in? Well, the state's um, Economic Development Finance Agency is the one that floated the bonds. And so they are in a somewhat of a supervisory role where they oversee the project and they um, their PEDFA board approves the parking system's budget annually. That's the biggest role that I as a reporter see is, and this will happen in two weeks when they'll pass the budget for the next year because the budget ties in the rates that they expect, how all the money will fit together, who's going to get paid what. Last year's budget actually is what kicked off the entire dispute because the budget that PEDFA approved cut $1 million from the city's revenue that they were expecting, and that's when the mayor started his fight and said, no, we are owed $3 million in 2016. You will pay us $3 million in 2016, but the budget only listed $2 million. And, and the budget... 
let's be clear. I mean, there is a contract that kind of governs where the money goes. And when the mayor says we're uh, Mayor Eric Papenfus of Harrisburg, when he says that we are owed three million dollars, I mean, does he have a, a legitimate case when you look at what the contract says? He he's basing that on the asset transfer agreement that was signed, and there is a list of city payments with very specific amounts listed for each year that started out at two million, r- rise up to three million, and then increase you know for the next forty years, and so that's the city's position, which is. Why would you have provided a specific amount annual payments if you didn't intend to stick with them? We think we're owed this amount. But there is some ambiguity in the language. Um, some of the other players in this say that you don't, you're not guaranteed these payments. It depends on the revenue that comes into the system, and that's the fight right now. And uh, I'm, I'm imagining lawyers right now, they're hearing ambiguity, and they're drooling right now because <laughs> that is where uh, lawyers come in to resolve that ambiguity. Um, so so what's the now that we've kind of laid out the, the state, the city, the county, and their, their roles, I mean, Christine, from a 30,000-foot view, what's the current status of the parking system? I mean, things are things are running, you wouldn't notice on the ground necessarily. Rates aren't going up um, other than, you know, where they've been over the past uh, couple of years. Um, What's the current status? How would you assess where things are at with the parking system? Well, they're really coming to a head. There's been several actions taken over recent months that just really put everything at a head basically this month because the, um, the the city, the Harrisburg Parking Authority already filed for default of the deal saying basically you're not holding up your end of the bargain with the payments that we're owed. Then there was a threat of a lawsuit to um, get the money that they're owed. And so the Harrisburg Parking Authority is still deciding whether to file a lawsuit. But what it means for the average person is the parking rates, too. That's There's a good chance or a possibility that rates could go up next year, and that's how they'll make the numbers work. And that's the city's fear because they think it will drive people away from Harrisburg. So I think in two weeks we should know a lot more after the PEDFA meeting. When they pass the budget, we'll see what the numbers are. And also there's this behind the scenes negotiation going on where the parties are trying to come to the table to decide who's willing to give up what. And the city officials have said, we're willing to compromise. We understand some money needs to flow to capital repairs, but we can't be the only one to suffer the pain in this deal. And so the parking managers are still getting what are known as performance bonuses. There's some operating expenses that the mayor thinks could be trimmed to allow more money to flow to capital repairs instead of just putting that all in the back of the city. Right, because the county wants to jump ahead of the city in this so-called waterfall and so that they can get those capital repair fund boosted a little bit. Right. That was one thing that was negotiated during this whole transfer of the parking assets was the city is first in line in the waterfall. But under some of the negotiations that are being proposed by the county, the capital repair account would go ahead of the city. And one thing I should note kind of at the top here is that we did reach out to all the principals involved in this. The city, the county, and the state uh, all declined uh, to appear on Smart Talk to talk about this. Uh, Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. As you hear Christine kind of lay this out, you've done a lot of reporting um, on on this in a, in a broader context. I mean, what, what's your assessment um, of where things stand in Harrisburg and how it compares to kind of bigger market forces? So, um, well, I guess I could say that 
one thing that Christine has reported on, at least in one case that I know of, are some of the, the downgrades to the parking system, um, to the issuers and, and the transactions themselves because of the poor performance, the underperformance of the parking system. And um, I mean, that does have to do with the parking system specifically. Um, but there are also, like you said, there are broader market forces at work. Uh, ratings agencies are taking a harder look at municipal issuers, um, you know, in part due to situations like Harrisburg. There are more disclosure requirements um, that the SEC and the MSRB, which is the Municipal Security Rulemaking Board, um, they're just getting more stringent about those kinds of things. So there's just a little bit more information out there than there was before. And with some rules coming online um, from GASB, which is the Government Accounting Standards Board, there's there will be a continuation of that trend, um, having to declare some liabilities that uh, they didn't in the past. So that would be long-term unfunded uh, pension obligations, the cost to cover retiree health care benefits, and um, and also guarantees, like we've been talking about, that uh, Dauphin County uh, has made in this case right now. There's no requirement on the part of a government entity making uh, a guarantee to declare that as like an obligation that they might have to pay. Um, until it gets to the point that there's a likelihood that they have to pay, and that's a really fuzzy tipping point, but right. one that tends to come up rather quickly. So those are some of the broader things. And I, I did want to add as far as um, you know, some of these uh, ideas that the mayor has and his willingness to compromise that Christine is talking about. Um, I also believe he made some kind of comment, you know, they're going to raise rates over my dead body. That kind of, that amounts to, on its face, an empty threat. And unfortunately, I don't know that the city or he are in that strong of a bargaining position to try to implement some of these ideas for compromise, because in exchange for getting all of this off the books, they had to give up authority. And control. They have no control. They have no right. real right. Right. Uh, decision-making authority, even though they have a seat at the table. So, I, I mean, Christine, and, and to that point, I mean, the mayor has had to show up for public comment to get his comments in front of the PEDFA board, in front of the state. Right. So, you know, like like Emily just said, they don't have control. And the the good part of that coin is that they don't have all that debt. But the bad part is those rates could go up. The parking, uh, the, uh, the parking garage rates could go up. The meter rates could go up. Uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of things that could be on the table if the city's upset about revenue that could impact the city, but also could bring revenue. Right. And Emily's point is important that the city doesn't, they're not in the driver's seat here, but the, the city officials tell me they believe they do have leverage, that there was a, you know, a deal, there were signatures on legal documents, and they believe that they could put up a big legal fight if they had to. They, I think everyone wants to avoid litigation because of the high cost. It, it would be a lot of money wasted, and it wouldn't solve the the actual structural problem, which is there's not and it's not generating enough revenue. So even if they figured out uh, went to a lawsuit and they figured out who owes what money, if you're not generating enough revenue, that problem exists beyond that, and that's the core of the issue. And so I know at least from the city's point of view, because they're the people I talk to most uh, on my beat is covering Harrisburg. You know they want to come to a solution. Um, how can we? I think they're even interested in reducing rates because they believe it will generate more demand. But I think the other parties involved are would be really reluctant to agree to that. So, I, I, oh, go ahead, Emily. And I guess to clarify, I mean, I hear what you're saying about you know the signatures and the belief that 
the documents should be interpreted a certain way. But I guess I I meant more about rates and how the parking system is run. Um, if if there's a, a change desired that's not already spelled out in the contract and. You know, there are sort of outs, as we all probably know, in the contract that if it gets to the point where the debt can't even be covered, which we're a long way from that happening, that really the parking system, um, you know, PEDFA, SP Plus can kind of do whatever they want uh, as far as raising rates. But that's a long way from happening. Um, And to go back to the uh, similar deal happened recently in Scranton. Their parking authority did retain some control, um, I believe, over rates. And that kind of goes to this broader thing that uh, uh, cities that are desperate for cash for whatever reason, looking at whatever whatever assets they have and trying to monetize them, that is definitely not unique to Harrisburg or to Pennsylvania. And some watchdog groups that are looking at this kind of stuff, kind of, they say you just really need to ask the the tough questions, and we can go back um, into that, Ben, if you want sort of elaborate. Yeah, let, let's go back to that. But first, let's take a break. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, uh, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. We're talking about the Harrisburg parking situation with Christine Vendel of Penn Live and Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or comment on WITF.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number, one 800 729 Three, two. And I'm Ben Allen, in for Scott Lamar, and we are talking about the Harrisburg parking situation. I want to take a step back, Christine, because one of the things that you said that might jump out to some people is they might say, wait, wait a second. They raise the rates, they increase all this enforcement, and they're still not making enough money to meet the deal. They're still not hitting their revenue goals. Were their revenue goals set too high, or are they just not... Uh, executing the revenue plan in the proper way? Well, I think most people agree that the revenue projections were too high. This this parking deal was part of this overall deal to get the city out of its crushing debt. And so I think in the scheme of things, when, when these numbers were, putting, were being put together, and Emily could probably speak to this better, but the, you know, the $3 million for the city the, in the annual payment seemed like a small number compared to the overall $400 million or whatever that was being discussed. And there have been accusations by the, the mayor, I think, has publicly said he thinks the, the numbers were backed into the revenue projections. I think they represented a 60 percent. Again, Emily could chime in, a 60 percent increase. You're shaking your head. <laughs> Yeah, that's correct. Sixty. Okay, so which some people were saying were unrealistic. Yeah. I mean, because the city council members at the time told me they thought they were maybe high, but they but, but you didn't really have anything to go on because the city's revenue wasn't um, the, the parking system wasn't functioning optimally, so they didn't have good numbers to compare it to. So they were thinking that they were inflated. But then there's also the idea of execution when when SP Plus came in and started with the enforcement really heavy, not a lot of 
good communication to parkers, maybe that drove some people away that otherwise would have continued to park. And and there's all the, the question of enforcement, because correct me if I'm wrong, but as I look at uh, the stories that you've done, Christine, and uh, other stories out there, is that, you know, in, in fact, in the ticket revenue, or excuse me, in the in the meter revenue, things are pretty on point. The the shortfall comes with enforcement, comes with booting, comes with people not paying tickets. Is that a fair assessment? That was in the last budget. That was the problem. I'd, okay. I'd like to see the numbers this year to see okay. how that's changed. Because remember, there was this problem with the city didn't enact the proper ordinances to get right. the court to accept the tickets, and that so that could have been a unique thing about the um, enforcement that might get worked out. Okay, so Emily, you were shaking your head a little bit about uh, the forecasts and, and how things have have uh, have fallen out. Do you do you think that that those forecasts were or those comments about the forecasts are, are fair? I think it was clear to everyone that there was going to be a sixty percent increase in revenue needed in order to make this work and the margins were extremely thin. There was no room for error. There was no room for underperformance. And Christina's right. Like, there were questions about um, whether the parking system was performing optimally. Also, obviously, there was going to be an increase in, in enforcement and in, uh, you know, rates and fines and things like that. So it was a lot for everyone to consider at the time. And, you know, it's easy to sort of, in retrospect, say it could have been better um, in any other way. But the truth is it did get the debt of the city off the books and um, allow the city to move forward. Who knows how else it could have been done. But I will say that the mayor's saying this now that he thinks that the numbers were backed into he really was silent about that during his campaign. And I was really surprised surprised by that. I mean, he was, I guess, optimistic and supportive of, of the concept as this was being put together. Now, he was running a campaign. I don't know how much time he had to really pay attention to all of the coverage or even look at the documents himself. I know that was something that he, he did um, previously. You know, I wasn't here during this time, but he was someone who early on had a working knowledge of the city's um, debt obligations and kind of sounded the alarm early on as a, as, a, as a government watchdog type about you know some of his concerns with how this was all going to work. So I, I would if he was here, I would definitely ask him about that. Um, and then I don't know if you want to come back to the broader picture thing again, but I'll, I'll well, throw yeah, it back let, to you let, now. <laughs> let's get let's get to the broader question thing in just a, a second. I want to go to a caller. Pam is in downtown Harrisburg, and Pam, you're on the air. Pam, are you there? All right, let's see. Pam, can you uh, hear me now? Hello? Yes. Yes. This parking thing has been such a hassle for all of the people who live downtown. The tickets have more than doubled. They're so overzealous, it's ridiculous. We've been ticketed a number of times where we had to go in and fight it. We won. Uh, and I'm sure it kills business. Uh, going in, everyone says, oh, you've got parking problems. The only ones who really benefit from this are the people on bicycles. Go recycle bicycles. Thank you. So, Christine, when you hear comments like that uh, from Pam about overzealous parking enforcement and how Standard Plus uh, or, or Standard Parking Plus, as they're known, uh, has handled things, I mean, is that something that, that city officials are frustrated about as well? Yes, because they believe that there is a serious 
PR problem involving the parking system that people are afraid of getting a ticket and they're afraid to come downtown. But as the caller noted, if you can test a ticket at the office, you can get results. I've personally experienced that. And so I think she brings up a great point, though, that people are affected by the rates. Yep. That's very sensitive, price sensitive. And what's scary about what right now is the discussion of increased rates. There's also discussion of increased tickets as part of the negotiations. And a combination of increased rates and increased tickets with the increased enforcement could really impact the kind of people and the number of people who come downtown. And does the contract allow for increased rates and increased tickets and higher rates at garages? Um, Emily would probably be able to speak to that better. I wasn't here when the contracts were signed, but it is my understanding that they control. That's what we were referring to earlier. The city doesn't control the rates and right. tickets. It's Right. Yes, that's true. So what, I'm sorry, can you repeat Yeah, that? does the contract allow... For that, sure. Yeah. Okay, I, I can answer that. Um, so basically, there's a... When it comes to street parking, there's this, like... And I believe this applies to the garages, too, but not to the state contract. That's kind of a separate thing. Um, there's a, a rate schedule. It's 3% a year that they're allowed to increase the meter rates by, and then whatever the hourly rate is, tickets can be 10 times that amount rounded to the nearest $5. They haven't enacted any increases yet, but the way the contract is worded, when, if and when they do that, the rate of the increase can be as if they were doing 3% a year every year. So if in 2017 they wanted to enact a rate increase, although it's a 3% annual limit, they could do an over 9% increase because they can make those annual increases that they were entitled to cumulative, if that makes sense. Um, and I know that you've reported on before that um, Christine, starting as early as 2019, they can run the meters longer and on and or on Sundays or holidays if they want to generate more revenue. So after 2018, that sort of protection on Sundays and holidays and the limit from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. is no longer there if they want to avail themselves of that option. So there are options on the table, and those are options that I would imagine a lot of people who go downtown or have businesses downtown would be nervous to hear. Sure. And I also wanted to mention booting, which has that started? Or yes. In, in theory, it started. I don't know if it's actually happened yet, but I, I do know that there have been, and I don't think that these are worked out yet, um, lags in the way the parking system records violations and payments that it, it seems like someone might get booted even if they've paid their tickets but i don't think that's happened yet christine would know more about right. how i think going. we would have heard about that yeah. we you know early on when the enforcement was increased we were hearing from every, everyone who thought they got a bad ticket or who thought it was unfair and i haven't heard a single thing about the booting and i haven't seen any just in my travels around the city so i am curious about how that's working if they've i know they delayed the the beginning of that program because they were trying to avoid just what you described emily and so that remains to be seen how the booting will work out and what sort of revenue that could generate, too. All right. So uh, as, as we wrap up here, and I want to thank both of you for taking the time to, to come in and talk a little bit about this. As we wrap up, though, um, what should people take away? You know, at this point, you know, there's a there's a meeting and they've got to uh, put together a budget for next year uh, in the next couple of weeks. What should people take away? How should they feel about this deal and and where this the the status of the of the Harrisburg parking system is at this point, Christine? Well, if you want to be glass half full, 
approach, you know, an optimist view, it would be that everyone that's coming to the table to negotiate would come up with some compromises that would allow um, the rates to remain lower and continue to draw people downtown and figure out some other way to make the the revenue situation work because the economic development downtown and all the businesses are very dependent on and it's very price sensitive. So that's the key thing. And, and Emily, your 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 final closing thoughts. Uh, I guess I would just say that even if you're not living and working in the capital region, or even if you are, um, monetizing public assets is something that uh, governments within our area, like besides Harrisburg and elsewhere, are going to continue to to look at. And there are concerns about conflicts and how the system generally works. And I will be doing a story on that that's getting published yeah. next week that <laughs> can uh, explain more fully than I have time to do right now. But just, you know, to try to stay informed and ask um, the tough questions and just we really don't know in retrospect whether the city could have done better, unfortunately. There's really no no way to tell. And as we've said, there are benefits, major benefits that were conferred to the city um, by doing this deal, but it's not, you know, it's not without an impact on residents. Yeah. Well, Penn Live reporter Christine Vendel and Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for breaking this uh, complicated situation down in terms of Harrisburg's uh, parking uh, mess at this point. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News. And all things regional, I'm Ben Allen, in for Scott Lamar. Attorneys often take on pro bono work to help those who can't afford a lawyer. McNeese Wallace and Newark attorney Keandra Baer didn't just take on the work. She went to the top. She petitioned President Barack Obama to reduce the sentence for a Louisiana man who was set to serve 20 years in jail. And he agreed. Keandra Bear now joins me in studio. Keandra, a good morning to you. Good morning. So talk me through this case and uh, and kind of how it, uh, it ended up on your desk. So... Um... A firm mentor of mine at McNeese, Rachel Hadrick, um, came to me and said, hey, you know, you want to take on a project through the Clemency Project 2014, um, which essentially is a program which defendants uh, submit an application seeking to have their case reviewed um, for a clemency petition to be submitted to the president. And I agreed. And uh, Rachel and I each got assigned uh, a a federal prisoner uh, to review their case and to come up with a petition, put together a petition to submit to the Office of Pardon Attorney. Um, so, you know, with open arms, I, I welcomed the project and um, got assigned to Mr. Rakel. And when you got, uh, let's actually take a step back. Who are these kinds of um, prisoners who are uh, a part of the Clemency Project? I mean, what kind of criteria do they have to meet to be a part of that? Yeah, certainly. So there is... Um, Certain there's different factors, and it, the, the list is sort of extensive, so I won't go into too much detail. But you know, they have to, you know, they cannot be a leader, organizer, manager of a uh, criminal organization. You know, their their crime that they were charged with couldn't have been one that included a threat of violence. Um, you know, they have to have you know prior conditions, convictions that are remote, not serious, not crimes of violence, things things sort of that nature. If they meet these criteria, which is what we as attorneys who take on these cases have to review and go through their records, if they meet the certain charging criteria, um, then their petition could you know potentially be granted. And Mr. Rakel in this matter met all of the criteria um, for 
his petition. So the the case lands on your desk. How do you how do you start with something like that? How do you create a clemency petition for the president? That, very interesting question. So um, I don't hold myself out to be any criminal expert. I actually practice civil law. Uh, so the clemency project gives us certain criteria, then trains us up, um, tells us certain things to look for. But it's up to us to actually dig up all of, do the research. You, you got to hit the nose, hit, put your nose to the ground and get running. Um, so you have to look up all their records. You have to um, look at their, their charging convictions and any appeals that have been filed, see where they ended up, and um, just do, do the research and, and apply the, the law to the facts of the case and uh, come up with the petition. Now, under uh, or what I understand about this is that a lot of these cases were people who, if they had been charged now and convicted now, they could have been their sentences would likely have been less than when they were initially sentenced. Is that right? That, that's correct. So the law changed. Um, so Mr. Rakel was sentenced back in 2006. And since then, the the crimes that he was charged for, the sentencing um, guidelines are, are now different. So um, that's the other part of the research is going through and seeing how the law changed and um, sort of coming up with a way that shows that if he was charged today and was sentenced before a judge today, the judge would have different um, guidelines and factors to look at to ensure that he would receive a fair sentence today. And just walk me through exactly the, the case itself. What 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 uh, crimes were he, was he convicted of? So he was convicted of, it was a conspiracy charge, and Mr. Uh, Rako has substance abuse uh, problems, um, quite frankly, and he uh, bought some drugs for uh, recreational use, and um, the person that he bought some drugs for essentially um, made it out to be, you know, like a conspiracy, and um, he, you know, went down with his other uh, co-conspirators, quote-unquote, um, but you know, he's always taken responsibility. He pled guilty, and um, that's sort of what happened. Someone someone might hear this and say, wait, so you're, um, because uh, there's always people who say tough on crime. Got to be tough on crime. Someone might hear this and say, wait, you're helping someone get out of jail. Uh, you know, what would you say to those, those people? You know, I, I don't think any of us are perfect. Um, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today without certain opportunities and people who believed in me, um, you know, and, and sort of showed me the way. So, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I've spoke with Mr. Rakel, um, I've looked at the facts of his case in and out, and in my heart of hearts, you know, I believe he, he deserves a second chance. If, if if someone who was sentenced today through the, you know, with the same crime would not be sentenced as harsh, you know, as he was back in 2006, then he deserves that opportunity. You know, he deserves to go back into the community and be a law-abiding citizen and, um, to, you know, the same opportunities that someone who have who has already served 11 years of a federal prison sentence today would be afforded. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of why I did it. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison, in federal prison. You got that essentially reduced now. It'll essentially be 12 years in federal prison. Y yes, it's it's conditioned upon a reentry program, which uh, the day after, you know, he heard from President Obama um, that his sentence was going you know, to be commuted, he entered into um, and he's currently going through that reentry program. So uh, once he completes that, his his target set date for release is October 6th of 2018. Um, you know, he'll be he'll be back with his family. And 
What was it like when you heard that that your petition was successful? <laughs> so I received a call, um, and I actually heard the news before Mr. Rico and I got the the privilege to call him and, and give him the news. And the first thing I did was go into my mentor Kendra McGuire's office and just tell her, like, "Oh my gosh, my my petition was granted." Um, you know, there's so many clemency petitions pending right now. Um, President Obama has done a remarkable job granting um, approximately a thousand petitions so far during his presidency, but there's so many more that have not been answered. Um, so the fact that my petition actually landed on his desk and was granted, and the fact that Mr. Reichel will be reunited with his family, all those emotions and um, things just built up inside me, and I was on like cloud nine at the moment. I couldn't wait to call Mr. Reichel and give him the news. Um, I mean, imagine what it would feel like for you to know that, you know, the next nine years that you were going to be sitting in a federal prison cell, um, you know, have now vanished. And you have a chance to take your life back uh, to normal again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tears of joy. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. And what was that phone call like with him? It was good. I I think, um, you know, he was shocked. And, and I don't necessarily think he knew at the time how to handle his own emotions. Um, but he did tell me, he's like, you know, you're, you're sentenced in months. So he was counting down the months and he was like, what went from a, you know, triple month figure just now went down into like double digits. And, you know, he's like, I can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, he was extremely thankful um, and and he was just, you know, ready to, to get going and go through this reentry program. Um, I think that from what he says, and, you know, he says, you know, he's a, he's a changed man and he's ready to come out, assimilate into society. He has a job um, waiting for him and he has a large family, a huge support system waiting for him with open arms. What do you think separated your case and the petition that you did from those thousands that President Obama uh, gets on his desk? Um, I don't know if there's a specific aspect that separated my case. I just think that, you know, applying the law to the facts, which is what we as lawyers do every day, and coming up with an argument and a reason as to why that petition should have been granted, I, I just think that that is, is what it really came down to. Um, obviously, the way that the law has changed um, is indicative of, of things that needed to be done, of, of change that needed to be made. So um, th- the facts of this case fit, you know, succinctly into those those specific areas. And I think that's just what Obama saw. So you're not taking any credit for, <laughs> for your work. You're <laughs> deferring all your credit to, you know, listen, to the law. At the end of the day, I, I don't necessarily think this has much to do with, with me. Like my credit sort of goes to just faith and, and, you know, the way that things should be. Like things are have a way of working themselves out. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, people have poured into my life. It's only right that I do the same for others. Um, I Again, I can't reiterate enough. I wouldn't be where I am. I'm a girl from the southeast side of Lancaster City, Pennsylvania. I wouldn't be where I am if there weren't people who believed in me. So that if I can reiterate and give back, I'll do that. Got to squeeze in a break here. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. We're talking with Keandra Bear of McNeese Wallace and Newark. More of the conversation in just a second. We're talking with McNeese Wallace and Newark attorney Keandra Bear. She led a team, or actually she actually did most of the work, I should say, to petition President Barack Obama to get a convicted man of a nonviolent drug offense to get him freed earlier than what was originally scheduled. Keandra, 
in, in some of the work that, that you've done, um, you, you, you said you do a lot of civil case law. What were some of the challenges in, in, in handling a case like this that, that's criminal in nature? Yeah, certainly. So, um, like I said, what I do is civil law. So, just sort of um, knowing where to look um, to, to get all of these records. It's not always easy when you're going to a federal prison and you're coming in um, as a new person in this case and try to obtain records and just knowing where to go to get the information. Um, that was one of the impediments. So, um, and again, like as I said earlier, I don't hold myself out to be a criminal law expert. So also being versed in the law and how it changed and um, calculating sentencing guidelines, it's, it's a messy area that, you know, a lot of people have, you know, trouble get wrapping their head around. So coming in and being able to learn those things, um, it was enlightening. And um, I'm happy that the research that I did paid off in the end. You never met your client. So what kind of challenges did that present? Yeah, I, I never met Mr. Reichel. Um Over the 10-month period that we worked together, I would talk to him on the phone. Um, so, you know, I would get weekly calls from the federal prison. We'd, we'd talk a lot by letter. And, you know, myself being uh, bringing a millennial, we're not always sending letters to people. So um, that was a different aspect that that was actually good. You know, um, he, he was a very polite man, um, you know, definitely has a, like, southern charm to him. So um, very respectable um, and, you know, who knows what the future holds? You know, maybe one day, if, if it's you know made available, we'll we'll get to meet each other. I was just gonna say, do you do you hope to one day meet him? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't be be against the idea. He's down in Louisiana. That's where all his family is. Um, so if if the opportunity presents itself, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to it. So after successfully petitioning President Obama to reduce a man's uh, criminal sentence in federal prison, I mean, what's your next encore? What do you what do you do uh, for an encore in a pro bono case after? that? <laughs> um, you know, I, I just continue to pour into the lives of others. I'm heavily involved with the Children Deserve a Chance Foundation, which is based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, working with students, mentoring them, getting them to college. Um, I think education is, is very huge, and I think that's, that's where the change happens. So um, just pouring into the lives of others and doing what I can um, to give back. Keandra Bear, McNeese Wallace, and Newark attorney. Thanks a lot for joining us on Smart Talk. Thank you. And now we make a bit of a transition here, and you're going to have to bear with me and uh, help me pull this off because we're talking about the holidays now. And when the holidays come rolling around, so do the lights. Who can forget the annual tradition? of untangling the Christmas tree lights. But there's much, much more. There are candles on the Hanukkah menorah, there's the burning Yule log, and the star of Bethlehem. The Planetarium at the State Museum has a new show on holiday lights and astronomy. Jenny Ashton is Chief of Education at the State Museum, and she's here in studio. Hi, Jenny. Hi, how are you? Good. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, this uh, new Planetarium show. What's it actually like? So it's all about the season of light, because winter is the darkest season for us. So it's about the what people do to make it feel warm and cheery during the season. And um, when you walk into that, that planetarium and you see all those lights uh, in this season of light, what are you seeing? So this is a very traditionally styled show. It's older, so it's, it's, it's not a full dome digital feel. It is digital, but it's much more traditional. And you've got Christmas music and all sorts of wreaths and Christmas trees, as well as, of course, because it's the planetarium. It's got stars. Um, and we talk about the history of traditions of, of Christmas and 
and Jewish traditions and Nordic traditions and all back to the solstice and all of that sort of thing. So it all tries to tie it together and build a nice story. I was going to say, how does holiday experiences tie into astronomy? So it's it's tied more to the solstice and that the Christian tradition was really settled there because that already existed. There were all these celebrations surrounding the solstice season, which falls on December 31st, and that has been around. So the Nordics, the Celts, all of those sorts of people celebrated that already. So when the Christian religion came in, they used that to build on their own religion. And um, what will people learn when, when they when they sit in this show? So people will learn about historic religious and cultural traditions. They'll hear songs. They'll learn about the story of St. Nicholas, um, as well as some astronomy stuff. So you'll learn about the winter constellations that we see here, as well as why we have seasons, the sun's path throughout the throughout the year and why it's summer when it's warmer, depending on the tilt of the planet. Um, And they also talk a bit about, which is my favorite part of the show, the Star of Bethlehem, where they follow the story of the birth of Jesus and whether or not, uh, what were they following? Was it Was it the North Star? Was it a supernova? Was it a comet? Um, Using the Roman stories to kind of attempt to give you some options of what the wise men were following. So it sounds like that is that's that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting stuff. It is. It's very interesting. And um, where did the idea for something like this come from? So this is produced um, in 1993 out of a company called Loch Ness Productions. And it's just, you know, generally people want to think about the season during the season. And we would try to meet our visitors' needs and have a planetarium show that talks about both the season as well as a little bit of the astronomy and the science behind it. So that's where this came from. So when you hear burning Yule log and when you hear <laughs> uh, candles on the Hanukkah menorah and the Star of Bethlehem, is it is there is there something that says you know holiday season and lights and kind of ties them together it's all about the it's it's mostly human nature and cultural that we you know we it is dark during the winter and it's cold so naturally we try to make that season feel warmer and brighter um you said you know the lights the candles in the windows were meant as a beacon of welcome and to show you the way to houses so it's all about just warm, happy feeling around the season, trying to make the darkness lighter. And what have you learned from this? I think I've uh, the Star of Bethlehem story, I think, is the neatest thing. I'm a historian by trade, so that is, it was fascinating because they were trying to meld the science to what both the Bible and um, Roman records say. And there's really not a clear answer. It's kind of interesting. They lay out all the stories for you and kind of let you come up with your own conclusion. And uh, what, what would your conclusion be? I, I don't really have a strong conclusion. I don't think there's evidence there to answer it, honestly, because there's not a lot in the historic record to answer it. So what would be your favorite part uh, of, of this uh, of this setup? My favorite part is just the, it's, it's full of holiday music and just kind of fun stories. It's not heavy at all. It tells you a little bit about traditions from all sorts of different cultures, so you learn a little bit of everything. And it's just fun and light, and the Christmas music is great. So uh, there's this, this uh, planetarium show mm-hmm. at the State Museum. Kind of give me the rundown. What are the actual details? It runs just about every day? So it runs starting December 14th next week, starting on Wednesday. Wednesday. We are open Wednesday through Sunday, so we have shows every day. Easiest way to find out when it's showing is on our website, which is statemuseumpa.org. 
Um, and you can find that out there. When you come in at the front desk, just talk to our front desk staff and they'll get you a ticket. Is this uh, going to be a new holiday tradition at the State it Museum? May, well, we've brought it back. So we have showed it before. And in the past few years, we have upgraded to a new system in our planetarium. So it took a while to re-upgrade the, the, the show to get it running again. Um, so it's something that some people may be familiar with. They may have seen it in the 90s in our, in our planetarium. And now it's back. Back by popular demand? Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, what are some holiday traditions uh, either at the at the State Museum uh, that, that you hope to kind of uh, keep going uh, into the future? So we, we every year we decorate. We've got our, our Reese and our, our William Penn statue is wearing his scarf and his mittens, so I suggest you come out and visit us sometime before the new year. We also have a New Year's event, which many people in the area will know. It's been going on for about 15 years on December 30th. I recommend and it's very family friendly. We actually drop a giant firefly from our ceiling with balloons. So that that uh, <laughs> that is uh, quite the quite the visual I've got right now. Um, what about uh, for you for you personally, Jenny? Uh, any family uh, holiday traditions that that stick out to you? It's more just spending time with my family. You know, we we open our present uh, our family presents on Christmas Eve and just kind of hang out in our pajamas all day in front of the fire and just enjoy each other. So uh, you've got the planetarium show. You've got mm -hmm. the uh, the uh, New Year's Eve event. Um, what el what else is going on at the uh, at the state museum right now? So we've got a couple of new exhibits that we've opened um, in the last year. We're also working on renovating our mammal hall exhibit, which is one of our iconic exhibits. Um, so that one is actually half of it is done. We've reopened that, so you can see our bison is now reopened and relit. Um, we also have an exhibit that opened just last Sunday called Pennsylvania at War, which is all about the USS Pennsylvania who um, that was in both World War One and World War Two, and happened to be at Pearl Harbor. And there's a special program on that on Sunday, I believe, that WITF's Smart Talk usual host, Scott Lamar, is part of as well. Yep, that was last Sunday. Yep. Oh, last Sunday. Yep. Excuse me. <laughs> all right. I'm getting all, all twisted up here. Okay, so um, Planetarium Show, uh, New Year's uh, Eve event. Um, what's, the, what's the rehab been like uh, on the exhibit um, uh, with, with, uh, with the mammals that everyone was paying so much mm -hmm. attention to? Uh, WITF's Carrie Burkett did a feature on. Mm -hmm. um, what? How's that been going? So half of the half of the uh, dioramas are complete, um, and we will be starting the second half some early next year. Uh, so the all of our our mounts have been froofed up and they look great and the lighting has been redone um, and it's mostly been conservation but it looks really awesome and people are very excited uh, the wall is temporarily down so I suggest again to stop by and check out those ones that are done when we are complete with the second phase which is the last half we will also be rolling out a whole new interpretive plan so there'll be new labels and things like that what uh what about that um, has been a challenge in terms of figuring out the uh, how to how to conserve such a, 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 a an iconic uh, exhibit. Well, and I'm, this started before I came here, but it was been it's it's been a long discussion over conservation of a something that is very well known and being very careful not to change much about what those dioramas are. They've kept it very true to historic. 
um, topics of what they were when they were installed um, and not changing them too much, but making sure that they are safe and that they'll be around for a very long time. Looking uh, forward for the State Museum, what's uh, what's on the plate for 2017? We're looking for a great new slate of new programs next summer and into the spring, uh, as well as another exhibit uh, related to World War, probably more on the archae- or the. Uh, Sorry, the archives posters related to World War One and World War Two, um, and just finishing up the Mammal Hall restoration. So that's what we're looking at for the next year. Okay, so let's go back to the planetarium <laughs> uh, show because that's why you're here talking about the season of lights. Um, and when when you go to the show, when uh, you walk out, um, what's what's kind of the main takeaway that you want people to have? I think it's just, you know, it's remembering the traditions of where it came from um, and just keeping the season in mind as you go through it and not remembering that it's all about warmth and and light and keeping positive as we go through the stress (laughs) that comes along with it. There's a lot of stress in the holiday season, (laughs) uh, and this is a chance to maybe relax and and forget about that stress for for just a couple minutes. You mentioned it wasn't too heavy in terms of content and stuff like that. Is this something that's family-friendly? It's very family-friendly. We'll actually be showing um, special showings during our our New Year's event, um, and it is there's many families who go in of all ages. Again, the Christmas music and and the imagery you'll see on the dome is very friendly to those kids. And uh, as, as the show uh, continues uh, to go on, new science come up and, and uh, get tweaked a little bit, or is this pretty much set in stone? It could be pretty much. This this show particularly is probably mostly set in stone. We don't change it too much because it is very traditional, and that's what the folks like. And with the Star of Bethlehem uh, thing, just just walk me through that one more time because that that sounds like really the the cool part mm-hmm. about about the planet. It is. Show. So they discuss the the Star of Bethlehem and what the wise men were following, and that it was a very there was something happening that was very bright in the sky. It could have been a comet. It could be a nova or a supernova, um, or it could have been a planetary conjunction, which is when two planets are on their orbit and just happen to meet right close together so they look like a very bright object. Um, the issue is is matching up the historical record from the Romans at the same time and what the Bible tells us as well. And there's a little bit of not, not enough information um, in those records to be able to completely nail down what it was. But there is some, some kind of science that goes into there it. There is, and, most definitely, yes. Yeah, and ambiguity can lead to Mm -hmm. lots of different interpretations you mentioned you have your own uh, kind of interpretation (laughs) of trying to uh, figure it out I mean could there be um, a a time where things could eventually get settled with something like that? Possibly they could always find something that the record supports what what they think the science is what uh just about a minute to go here uh jenny what um what exactly or, or what would you like to to leave people with um as uh we talk about uh the planetarium show at the at the state museum talking about the season of lights well just to come over over and enjoy us uh visit us for the season uh and just remember we're here and we actually we have two experts that work in the planetarium who can also answer some of your questions about planetarium and astronomy questions 
Well, Jenny Ashton with the State Museum, really do appreciate you coming in and talking. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all our guests today, Penn Live reporter Christine Vendel, Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty, McNeese Wallace and Newark attorney Keandra Bear, and Jenny Ashton, she's chief of education at the State Museum. On Monday's program, Scott Lamar returns, and the subject is an interesting one, fake news.